Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. This is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. The podcast you would do if you had nothing better to do. What? Oh, I was going to say, you have something better to do in the next few weeks. Yeah. Are we going to talk about that? But yeah, so this is our last episode, episode 128, our last one until the first week of October. Oh my God. Because Liz and I are going on a long planned trip. I'm leaving next week and we're going to be gone for a month. I'm sure people will miss us, but <laughs> but we have a lot to talk about tonight. So we should probably... Yes. There was in the Sunday paper, a story about something we had talked about last episode. Yes. It's Dennis, Dennis, Dennis DeShane. Yeah. When I first saw the headline, I was like, because uh, it was, could a serial killer have killed Sarah Cherry? And I'm always that like, was misleading. people always think it's some serial killer. But the story is, as we mentioned last episode, Dennis DeShane has been in prison since 1989 for the murder of 12-year-old Sarah Cherry yes. here, here in Maine. But one interesting thing in the story in the Press Herald, aside from the whole serial killer aspect, is the evidence shows she was alive. It says conclusive evidence shows yes. that she was alive six hours after he was picked up, after DeShane yes. was picked up. And I think I had heard that before. And, I, um, I, I may forgot. have, but I don't know what it is. Like the story didn't say, or at least. Not I the, did say um, okay. it was because of her rigor mortis. Okay. And see that, that might've been the part you said was cut off because it was near the end. Not just rigor mortis, but insect activity. Believe that she was, even at the most generous of what time, it still didn't overlap with before he was caught. And this story, part of it promotes the idea that, now, sorry, you'll hear the rattling of a newspaper. That may be a foreign no- sound to a lot of people. Could notorious serial killer? Notorious. What a, you know, these headline writers are, and why did they use know, that font? Get- the story discusses Mark Evanitz, who it calls a notorious serial killer, but let's just call him a serial killer because notorious to me, notorious would be Ted Bundy or, you know, one of the guys you're always seeing on true crime shows. And this guy, I don't think I've ever heard his name, but Mark Evanitz, who was in Maine with the Navy at the time Sarah Cherry was killed, whose pattern of behavior, who's killed numerous young girls and his pattern fits. I have to admit, it, it really does. It makes a compelling case. It's so compelling is the gross pedophile neighbor. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is reading that story, and I didn't know if there were so many suspects, but once again, and this happens with a lot of the stuff we talk about, how very many people were in this little girl's orbit who could have done this. I know. Her. It's I know. frightening. But the biggest thing is, of course, the It's a typical, the law enforcement rushed to judgment. They didn't investigate well. Evidence was lost. And apparently like the stuff about her, she was still alive after he was picked up by police was in all the evidence that the defense got, but they didn't understand it well enough to realize that's what it meant. And the way laws are written, unless there's new evidence, your appeals are. Which is splitting hairs. It annoys me. When the spirit of the law is ignored because of the letter of the law, this isn't new evidence because it was there. If it's something that's exculpatory, you're going to say, oh, well, you know, because it was already there and someone ignored it. I mean, right? didn't understand it or didn't use it. Right. And and that now it's obvious. I know it is ridiculous. And also just the way that law enforcement and prosecution dig in their heels. Like when this guy was being investigated. 
in all the places he had lived, the police called, you know, mm-hmm. from wherever else called, and they called Maine, and Maine said, well, no, we don't have anything, any unsolved cases from that yeah. time, because they had already convicted Dennis Deshane. So... so instead of saying, yeah, we have one that's similar, but we, but we convicted somebody for it, they just said, no, we don't have anything. You know, I'm not just bashing law enforcement, but the problem with stuff like that is that this guy was able to continue raping and murdering children up until one kid got Ugh. away from him and he got caught. Who knows how many others he told one of his many girlfriends or wives or whatever, I've committed more crimes. No, his than sister. sister. Told his right, sister. I've committed more crimes than you'll ever know. And they found all sorts of shit, including like video of himself. No, now, what, what is it with guys? A lot of people in Maine, as we said last episode, think Dennis DeShane is guilty just because they have been told he is. And a lot of it is the copaganda that's really beginning to annoy me. I just learned that phrase where cops are wonderful and they're always right and everything they do is perfect and all this bullshit. And the way it was reported, the evidence mm-hmm. that there was physical evidence that showed he was there but it wasn't like i'm not saying it's beyond the realm of possibility he would have dropped a receipt with his name in it on it in the driveway but come on you know my only thing about it being the serial killer and i meant to say this last episode i don't understand why a serial killer would feel it necessary to stage a scene to make it look like someone else except for the fact that this guy was living in the area so maybe that would be why instead of just somebody passing i do agree with you that if it was a serial killer the chances are him trying to to frame someone else are less likely than somebody somebody else right somebody who's acquainted with who knows and another thing i had said last time is how would a random killer serial or not have known happened upon her where she was Yes. But this guy stalked. And, and he would and, knock on the door. And if they weren't alone, he would leave. Right. You know, so it makes And you it wouldn't think anything of it because he's more a likely person. Right. As many of them are. When Dennis DeShane was, was arrested, people were like, well, look at him. He's a druggie, blah, blah, blah. But to me, that's one of the things that makes me think he's less likely to Me too. He's this too was, out of it. He can't even remember. Right. This was somebody to, who could tie intricate knots, who could do all this other stuff. Not it wasn't just a messy random attack. The fact that he was and he had never done so drug right, right. And one interesting thing reading this Portland Press Herald story is that it turns out this the evidence killed two of the women that you had your yes, you did, and I totally missed that when I was reading it because I was like skimming that part of it. So I will do a more thorough update on that. Yeah, we'll talk about it more. Evidence, evidence, evidence might be a good topic for an episode except for it would be really just mind-numbingly grotesque disgusting and depressing i just i know i'm a broken record but when law enforcement doesn't do their job and innocent people are convicted it allows guilty people to continue to offend and also allows people to accept these cliches it's a drug addict it's this mess up drug addict instead of this guy who's traveling all over the country killing dozens of of little girls well anyway but you have an update i do have an update it's from episode 96 
about Sean O. Harrison, the Rev. Oh, yeah. I can't remember what the name of our. It was like who really was Sean Harrison or something, something like that. I have uh, trouble thinking 96. up. Yeah, I have trouble thinking up names sometimes. They call him a dean. He was a school dean. He was fucking a... poser. He um, was kind of like this liaison. He was there to help kids and stuff. And a this cool, was in Boston. A cool Rev. And you have to listen to the episode. He ended up shooting one of his students who was not killed. He was ended up paralyzed. The student, whose name was Luis Angel Rodriguez, he was 17 at the time, and that was in 2015, so he's, what, 25? <laughs> Who knows? Some possible. He's paralyzed. He's got no. a lot of problems because he was shot in the back of the head. Uh. It kind of went into his lower, his neck area. Anyways, Sean Harrison is in prison, and he will be for, he got like 26 years or something. So the kid's not going to get much money, but but Rodriguez was awarded $7.5 million for pain and suffering and emotional distress and $2.5 million in punitive damages. It just happened just like maybe a week or so ago. That was my update. Sorry, I'm tired. I've been oh, sick all good. week without yeah. COVID. I've yeah, taken yeah. several COVID tests. You guys tests. take a lot of COVID tests at your house. But it is a very bad, it was either the flu or just a really, really bad. And then, bad, uh, I mean, of course, it was hellishly hot and humid. Oh, my God, it was doesn't so hot. Help. Well, it's one of those ones where I had a hard time standing up. I was so dizzy and stuff. Oh, of course, I'm sure I won't lose any weight because of No, I, that's the downside. I never do. And you have some updates i have a couple updates okay okay i just want to update episode 127 our last episode jill sybotham and lydia hansen by saying that there is literally no news there's no sightings nothing new it's been five weeks since they disappeared i get really annoyed that a lot of articles call them missing campers because the whole camping thing was a ruse for nick hansen to take them away. The only new thing, is, if it is even new, is Seacoast Online reported a few days ago that the FBI is now involved. But I haven't seen anything else on that. And I checked the FBI's website. Jill and Lydia are not listed on their missing persons page or their endangered page or anything like that. There are no press releases about them being involved. They quoted Matt Gagney, the Sanford main cop who was quoted in our episode so he told Seacoast Online that, I guess, but it's not on the Samford Police Facebook page where they were doing updates. There's been no updates, nothing, nada, zilch. Hmm. And also it looks like the story still hasn't picked up much steam with the general public. You would think a missing woman and her child, and I know people think it's some gray area where she supposedly went off willingly and stuff. She obviously didn't. I honestly feel like... I think I he must have threatened her mother or something. Or whatever threats he made, her mother wasn't well, either present or didn't understand. I think he threatened her mother right. and or the baby. He, he used some kind of threat had to a get her that the to mother leave with him. See. Yes. Yeah. And it's not clear if the mom was even there for the entirety of their yeah. discussion. Her mother isn't well. She lived with her parents. But anyway, you can listen to the episode if you want to know more. Now, episode 77, Say Her Name, The Police War on Black Women, which we talked mm. about Brianna Taylor and some others. And this also touches, too, on episode 95, Janetta Carr, Justice A Long Time Coming. And Janetta Carr, unless you've listened to our episode, is a name you may not even recognize because she's one of the many women who, Black women, who get screwed over by police. So anyway, former and current Louisville, Kentucky police officers, Joshua James, Kyle Meany, 
Brett Hankison and Kelly Goodlett were charged by the U.S. Department of Justice on August 4th with federal crimes connected to the 2020 shooting death of Breonna Taylor in Louisville. Mm -hmm. The charges include civil rights violations, conspiracy, use of excessive force, and obstruction. Three of the officers, well, one's a former officer, James is a former officer, Meany and Goodlett are charged with lying to get the search warrant that they used to search Taylor's apartment. And U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland held a news conference on August 4th. He said that that lying, among other things, violated Taylor's civil rights and directly led to her death. In the Justice Department news release, which I'll link to on our website, Assistant Attorney General, U.S. Attorney General Kristen Clark said, on March 13th, 2020, Brianna Taylor should have awakened in her home as usual, but tragically, she did not. Since the founding of our nation, the Bill of Rights to the United States Constitution has guaranteed that all people have a right to be secure in their homes, free from false warrants, unreasonable searches, and the use of unjustifiable and excessive force by the police. These indictments reflect the Justice Department's commitment to preserving the integrity of the criminal justice system and to protecting the constitutional rights of every American, unquote. And I just want to point out those things were written into the Constitution because the colonists at the time were getting a lot of that crap from the British. And they said, we all need to be, you know, our home is our castle, so to speak. And that's why our Constitution has that stuff. That's just a generalization from my (laughs) history learning. Merrick Garland said, we allege that the defendants knew their actions and falsifying the affidavit could create a dangerous situation. And we allege these unlawful acts resulted in Ms. Taylor's death. Meany and Goodlett are still with the department. One's a detective and one's a sergeant. Mm. Garland said that they and Janes also engaged in a cover-up and conspired to mislead federal, state, and local authorities who were investigating the shooting. Hankison, who was acquitted earlier this year by a jury on charges of wanton endangerment, Mm. is charged federally with using excessive force for firing 10 additional shots into Taylor's apartment. If you remember, he was the only one fired by the police department, but it wasn't because he shot anyone. And that was a few months after it I happened. I think it wasn't because, I think it was because he shot, though, like using right. a firearm, but it wasn't because he actually Right, him. he did it the wrong way. He yeah. did, right, the procedural thing wrong. And we also talked about the fact that he's been accused by Louisville residents in the past of using excessive force and Ooh, also sexual ass. abuse and harassment in his role as a police officer, something he apparently got away with for years. And for all of you who are all like, what about double jeopardy about, because he was acquitted, Uh, a few months ago and now is being charged the thing is these are not the same charges and also you can be charged federally for the same crime after being acquitted by a state jury because since like i said different charges in fact the justice department makes that clear in the release saying the charges are separate from the charges previously filed by the commonwealth of kentucky quote the federal charges allege violations of the u.s constitution rather than of state law the federal charges also allege excessive use of force with respect to taylor and a person staying in her apartment which i'm sure is her boyfriend kenny walker violations not included in the commonwealth's case unquote taylor for those of you who may have forgotten was 26 and an emergency medical technician when she was shot. The police burst into her apartment in the wee hours of the morning and her boyfriend, Kenny Walker, as is his right as an American, 
shot at them because he didn't know they were police and he was defending his home. Nobody told him it's only your right if you're a white guy, not a black guy. The police responded with their own barrage of gunfire, 22 shots, killing Brianna. And also, this is the part that relates to episode 95, Janetta Carr, a reminder that the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division has a pattern of practice investigation into the Louisville Metro government and the Louisville Metro Police Department, which Garland announced on April 26, 2021. It's a civil investigation that is examining allegations of systemic violations of the Constitution and federal law by the Louisville Police Department, and the civil pattern or practice investigation is being handled independently from the criminal case by a different team in the Justice Department. Episode 95, in which Carr, a teenager at the time, was coerced into confessing to a murder she had nothing to do with Mm. because she was a young Black person and the cops are dicks. Uh, We also went into a lot of detail about how the Louisville police operated, their long history of lying, of testifying, coercing confessions, getting people convicted for things they didn't do, and a lot of it is racial or against poor people who have no resources. Janetta Carr, she's a good person. She's a good woman. She got a pardon from the Kentucky governor, but she had been charged with a felony and it's still on her record. When you get a pardon, your conviction isn't cleared. It's saying, yeah, you're guilty, but yes. you know, we forgive you or whatever. She's still working to get her record cleared because she did not commit a murder. Ugh. Those are my updates. So now you have a story to tell. Oh, yes, I have a story to tell. Okay, I got most of my information uh, directly from the Lewiston, uh, Lewiston, Maine, Sun Journal. And some of them came from the Portland Press Herald and Central Maine online. But most of it was the Sun Journal. Uh, Any other sources I'll cite if I have them. I don't think I do. Um, This is going to be another story, just like episode 124 about fires and arson although unbelievably considering the loss of property no people died what was episode 124 Sh- jane and shushko oh right <laughs> there were some an- animal casualties in this Aww. though just to warn you fires make good news stories Readers and viewers are fascinated by fire. There are always lots of dramatic images for the newspapers and video for the television. And as a main TV news watcher for almost 50 years, I can tell you that it seems like when there is a huge, large building fire, chances are it's going to be in Lewiston. There's a logical reason for this. Lewiston, the second largest city in Maine, grew as a mill town with blocks and blocks of wooden tenement buildings. Most of these structures were built around the turn of the 20th century. These buildings have not been historically well-maintained. As the mills and shoe factories closed down, the neighborhoods became shabbier, people became poorer. Most of the buildings were owned by landlords who owned several or many units and didn't live in the neighborhood or even in the city. The city itself had money problems and still does, And the budget didn't cover a lot of building inspections or code enforcement. So it's not uncommon for an electrical issue to spark a fire in one of these tinder boxes or a carelessly tossed cigarette butt or a grill on the back porch of a triple decker or someone deciding to set a fire. And the problem is when you have poorly maintained wooden buildings, many of them only feet apart, 
When one sparks up, the others can catch. The first fire started about 4.30 in the afternoon of April 29th, 2013, which was your 52nd birthday? 52nd birthday. It was a beautiful, sunny, late spring afternoon. A lot of people were hanging out in their apartments, running errands, or working. The first building to burn was 105 Blake Street, a large triple-decker with nine apartments. And by the way, all these street names sound alike. That neighborhood, I know Blake isn't a tree, but that's called the Tree Streets neighborhood. That's because the cross streets are all tree streets. Yes, it is. Jessica Ramsey had recently moved into the building with her five-day-old baby. Her apartment was on the third floor. She heard a loud bang and smelled smoke. When she went into the kitchen to investigate, she saw smoke and flames coming in the window. She said, I grabbed my baby and left. Sadly, she had to leave behind her dog who died in the fire. It only took a few minutes for the fire to spark the building behind it, 172 Bates Street, which was a 12 apartment building. And also, I want to say, besides all the street names starting with B and stuff, you don't need to keep track of that. But there's also like about 10 Jessicas, two Ryans. There's different people with the same last name that aren't related. So just go with the flow. Okay. By 5 p.m., the flames from 172 Bates Street had reached over and caught the roof of 82 Pine Street, which had nine units. Both buildings, like 105 Blake Street, were three stories. Angela Gayton was asleep along with her three-week-old baby in their third-floor apartment on Pine Street. She woke up when her baby started crying. She went to the back of her apartment and saw flames outside the window on the eaves. As she turned to get the baby, the windows exploded. Uh Angela fled the building, taking nothing but the baby. By this time, people were gathering in the street, and Angela's mother and other friends and family had come to make sure she was okay. Nancy Jeskowicz, a neighbor, said, I gave them $20 for diapers. They have no jacket, nothing. Katie Hunnefield also lived at 82 Pine Street. She told the Sun Journal, I was at Pep Boys for an inspection sticker. (laughs) And I have to do an aside here because I always think of their commercial where there's a customer calling like a garage that's not Pep Boys. And he says, is my car ready? (laughs) And the guy's like, I got three guys on it right now. They show (laughs) the background. The three guys are sitting on the car, like eating lunch or something. (laughs) I don't know why. Her phone started blowing up with texts and ringing with calls. People wanted to know where she was. She called police and was told the fire was on Blake Street, so she thought that was okay. But then when she got home, she saw her own building on fire. Jessica Foster, who also lived in the Pine Street building, said, I got my bird out, but the police told me to leave the cat. Luckily, Jessica's cat, Chris, was was found during the cleanup after the fire was out. Wet, but okay. Adriana Garcia, 58, had lived at 172 Bates Street for eight years and managed the building. Two weeks before, she had broken her foot, and that afternoon, she'd come back from a doctor's appointment, took a pain pill, and fell asleep. She woke hours later, smelling smoke and hearing crackling wood. Black smoke was coming into the bedroom. Outside her second floor window, she saw flames and cinders blowing by. She jumped out of bed and cracked her cast on the floor. She hobbled through the apartment, not taking the time to grab even her crutches, let alone shoes or belongings. She said, my first instinct was the people across the hall from me. Adriana's neighbors were Richard and Alicia LePage, both older than Adriana. Richard had a lot of medical issues and Alicia was blind. Their door was unlocked 
and when Adriana opened it, she found Alicia asleep on the recliner and Richard asleep in the bedroom. Adriana said, I started hollering, Alicia, please, honey, please, we've got to get out. We've got to get out. We're on fire. She managed to pull the older couple out of the apartment building and down the stairs as the heat intensified. Quote, at the same time, I'm hollering, I need some help, but nobody could hear me because everybody was already out. Once outside, Adriana and the LePages were approached by people on the street. The windows on the building started breaking, and Adriana looked up to see her home engulfed. She made the sign of the cross, quote, I said, thank you, God, for waking me up just in time and helping me get these people out, and I'm alive. While she was called a hero, Adriana said, God's always holding my hand one way or the other. I got two people that mean a lot to me out. I don't think of myself as a hero. I thought of myself as one of God's soldiers. Adriana's husband was a roofer on, on the job in Old Town. He came back for one day, but she told him he needed to get back to work. They had nothing and no insurance either. They needed the money. After the fire, she was staying with relatives of Alicia LePage. She said, I'm trying to get things situated. Like right now, I just came back from the Department of Human Services. People keep telling me, go here, go there. By the time I'm done, I'm so tired and so much pain, but I'm doing what I have to do. Her children lived in Texas and she hadn't seen them in four years. Her son had just sent her an iPod touch for Mother's Day so she could video chat with them. Quote, I didn't even get to talk to him or use it, she cried. But then she said, I'll start over again. I'm alive. And those iPad touch, they don't make them. They just stop no. making them. Roberta Greenlaw lived at Healy Terrace Senior Housing at 81 Ash Street, which is on the other half of the city block next to the Blake Street and Bates Street building. She said, I thought it was our building at first. Then I looked out and saw the smoke. She was looking out her window, holding her mixed breed dog, Dude. She said, I grabbed him, grabbed my purse and got out. You'll be happy to know whoever the reporter was. I should have written down the name, got the breeds and names of most of the dogs. Well, good. I know. When she got outside, she moved her car away from the burning buildings. There was a parking lot behind Healy Terrace that separated it from the other burning buildings. Also, miraculously, the other three buildings on the block on the corner of Pine Street and Bates Street were untouched by the flames. The surrounding buildings were all evacuated until the fires were put out late into the night. Fire crews from surrounding towns and cities came to help. Auburn, Lisbon, Oxford, Topsom, New Gloucester, Turner, Mechanic Falls. At about 11.30 p.m., Lewiston Fire Chief Paul LeClaire felt the firefighters had the fires under enough control that they could start releasing some of the firefighting units. Chief LeClaire said, it was a hard night, but everyone made it through. The three buildings were total losses. 75 people were homeless. There were pet deaths, including a pot-bellied pig who lived uh, in the Blake Street building. Oh, but I bet it but no like people bacon. died. And nobody, oh, that's horrible. No people died and nobody was really injured. A couple of the firefighters had to be treated for smoke inhalation, but that was it. By 10 a.m. on Tuesday morning, crews arrived to raise the Blake Street and Bates Street buildings, which were in danger of collapsing. Before that, at about 8 a.m., fire marshal investigators arrived to try to figure out the cause of the fire and where it initially started. It was difficult because the fire had burned so fast and hot. Also, the buildings were so unstable that investigators had to observe the ruins from above by a ladder truck and weren't able to actually go inside. 
The building at 105 Blake Street had been condemned earlier in the year by the city, but still had tenants. City officials have been trying to find places for the residents to live. The building had been condemned because of a leaky roof, mold, the porches were falling apart, and a bunch of other issues, which we will Ugh. talk about later. Some of the empty units were being occupied by squatters, but it seemed that everyone had gotten out of the buildings okay. While police suspected drug use in the building, mm, like street, well, probably all of them, they didn't know what would cause an explosion or start a fire. Because a lot of people heard a bang, said they heard a bang. And the days after the fire, there were rumors that it was started by a meth lab. Tuesday, the front doors, Tuesday after the fire, the front doors of 82 Pine Street stood open and water poured out of the building. The fire crews had sprayed millions of gallons of water the night before. And if the public works makes the water pressure higher or something for the right. firefighters. The Bates Street building had, had had a sign on it before the fire that said auction but the paper didn't say when it was supposed to be auctioned off on tuesday morning police were interviewing the people who lived in 105 blake street to see what everyone was doing when the fire broke out hoping to see how it got started by wednesday there was a massive swath of rubble from blake street to Bates street along the parking lot behind healy terrace Around the corner on Pine Street, the husk of number 82 stood precariously. Fire Chief LeClaire told the Sun Journal, It's very traumatic for people. It's scary. We'd like to get it behind us so the community can move forward. It's not going to remain standing, which by that he meant the building. On Wednesday afternoon, a tenant who lived in a first floor apartment was allowed to remove his stuff. His apartment was the only one deemed safe to enter. He said, there isn't much to get. The looky-loos were still gathered around watching the proceedings. Chief LeClaire said, it was like a parade out there for a while. That's another reason we want to take that building down. That neighborhood, there's a lot of people out of work, so there's a lot of looky-loos. The methamphetamine lab rumor persisted, especially since many witnesses reported the explosion before the flames started. Some thought it might be a barbecue grill. As we discussed in our previous fire story, which was episode 124, Something else might have exploded. There's no mention in the news stories if they had gas stoves in the building or somebody could have had a gas grill that had a had a right. tank on somebody it. Somebody could have had some aerosol or, cans yeah, or, or anything. Yeah, or gas stored yeah. or lighter fluid or anything. Right. So even though people thought they heard a boom before it started, there was a boom that probably made a... By Thursday, May 2nd, only three days after the fire, the speculation stopped. Police announced they'd made an arrest. Chief Police Michael Boussier said they had arrested a 12-year-old boy and charged him with three counts of arson. At the time, Chief Boussier wouldn't say if the boy lived in the building or how the fire was set or why. Almost a dozen investigators conducted dozens of interviews with witnesses and tenants, according to the police. As of Tuesday, the fire investigators said it would be difficult to determine the cause and exact location of where the fire started, but they knew it started at 105 Blake Street. State Fire Marshal Sergeant Joe Davis said the investigator's theory has been pretty much corroborated by all the interviews we've done, and everything matches up to what we thought had happened. Mm. The building at 105 Blake Street was not only condemned at the time of the fire, but it had been scheduled to be auctioned in three weeks as part of a six-property package. The other five buildings were also in Lewiston. Watkins Property Management, who owned the building, owed real estate taxes of, of $2,603 and water and sewer bills 
totaling $12,531. The building was valued at about $191,000. The building at 172 Bates Street was owned by Karen Property Management and assessed for $210,000. Although it had an auction sign on it, like I said, the newspaper didn't say when it was supposed to be sold. The building at 82 Pine Street was owned by ASM Properties and assessed at $154,000. As I said before, it's funny how cheap they were even nine years ago compared to buildings here in Portland, but that's the location. Mm -hmm. A lot of tenants who were still scrambling to find clothing to wear and a place to sleep were pissed off by the arrest. Jessica Foster, remember the one who lost then found her cat, Chris, said, I didn't know there was an arrest, only heard that a 12-year-old started it. Definitely frustrated me. The many lives this irresponsible child could have taken, the thousands of dollars in damage he's caused, the loss of some pets, furniture, sentimental things we own. This destroyed me, not because I lost the flat screen TV I own or the computer or even the clothes and shoes I love, but the drawings and cars my husband had done for me. I even lost all my hair tools I had. I graduated from cosmetology school and recently received my temporary cosmetology license, allowing me to work in a salon. That will be on hold now for I have nothing. I was in the middle of packing to move to Boston to start a new life with my husband and make some positive changes and get away from this place I call hell. That too will be put on hold. This little child is, has taken so much from all of us and I hope he gets the maximum punishment possible. Mm. I'm trying to stay positive and be thankful that I do. However, I have my life and my pets, my bird money and my cat, Chris. He's the one they found six and a half hours later. I'm doing my best to get him to forget what has happened. He's Aww. been traumatized. This was not fair to any of us. Some of us have worked hard for what we have, end quote. Although, to be fair, if the 12-year-old kid, I mean, can't really have a right. job. Jessica said it was the second time in five years she'd been homeless by a fire just before she was to move. Quote, this definitely has been a rough time for me. I hope everyone recovers and gets back to their lives. I'm doing my best to get through this and move on. With God, I know all is possible. Abby E. White Owl, 41, who used to live in the Blake Street building but didn't live there at the time of the fire, was not surprised by the arrest. Quote, they run the streets at all hours and there's no supervision, no respect for anyone or anything, end quote. A neighbor, Blanche Terjolin, said, I am shocked it would be a 12-year-old boy when I was informed it was a drug deal gone bad. If this 12-year-old boy did this, what was his motive? Really, why would you just happened to choose that building, that floor to set a fire. Was he told to get back at someone? Was he told to do this by someone else? So many questions on why a kid could and would do this. Katie Honeyfield, 25, the one who was at Pep Boys, lived at Pine Street with her three kids. She said, I am just sad. I feel bad for the choices he chose to make. I think he is old enough to know right from wrong, and I'm sorry, but I also have to wonder about the guidance and discipline he has been brought up with. My oldest is seven, and he knows what lying is. He knows right from wrong. He knows if he does something wrong, there will be a consequence, end quote. I have a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, I'm surprised anyone is surprised the suspect was a young boy. I usually assume if the fire has been set that it's a young boy or some weirdo guy, man. Yes. Also, people are naive to wonder what a motive for a kid that age. He wouldn't think out a motive. I don't think he would even realize how bad things can end up. Kids set fires. They don't 
young boys that right. age, uh, pre-adolescent is right. one of the highest, yes. them and men. Right. And then there's little kid, little kids do it. I want to say something as a, a former newspaper editor that th- a lot of those quotes that I had constant, not constant, but I had battles with reporters and other editors over when somebody is charged and they haven't been convicted to to use a lot of of damning quote that this assumes, was before they knew who he was too so. is still even yeah, though quotes that assume his guilt as well as and i think people don't understand that distinction if somebody's charged with something between the time there's a person charged with something and the time it's adjudicated newspapers should not be printing quotes from people who have opinions about yeah, innocence and guilt and but anyway i'm sorry on friday night may 3rd screams of fire were heard again in the streets of lewiston this time it was a couple blocks away from the fires of monday afternoon this time it was on pierce and bartlow streets the fire started in a condemned three-bay garage behind 149 bartlett street it quickly spread to the nine-unit apartment building on Bartlett. Within minutes, the building behind it, 110 to 114 Pierce Street, was on fire as well. By Saturday morning, at least four apartment buildings, along with the garage, were engulfed in flames. The fire moved quickly through the old structures, but again, no person was hurt or killed, but 100 people were out of their homes. Scott Vachon, who lived near the burn building, said, People came running out and they just scattered. People were screaming, fire, fire. Mothers were screaming for their children. Other people were just shouting and crying. It was terrible. The fire just kept climbing and climbing. It caught the building on fire and it just lit right up. Scott told the newspaper he was sure the fire was intentionally set. The block between Walnut and Birch Streets was full of people in pajamas, screaming, looking for family members and loved ones, crying, holding babies, pets, and belongings. One of the people rushing out of a burning building was a man who told reporters he had lived at 105 Blake Street and had escaped that fire Monday. Robin Johnson lived at 141 Bartlett Street with her five-year-old and nine-month-old sons. She saw the building next door burst into flame. Quote, the fire was so unbelievable. I could feel the heat of it from inside my apartment. I've never gotten my children out so fast in my life. I think I literally dragged my five-year-old out. I picked up the baby and we got out of there, end quote. Lewiston Police Sergeant James Thies said, I had all my guys getting into those buildings and getting people out. It was tough, but they did a great job. One disabled man couldn't get out of his Pierce Street apartment and was rescued by firefighters. Sean Greeley lived in an apartment at 139 Bartlett Street. He heard something outside and looked out the window to see a wall of flame where the condemned garage stood. He said, it was going up real good. Someone set that garage on fire. There's not a doubt in my mind. The people standing around outside concurred. Rumors of arson were circulating throughout the crowd, even as the firefighters were trying to get the inferno under control. I've been pretty good about not saying blaze or inferno. Investigators were called to the scene immediately. So was Chief of Police Michael Boussier. The Red Cross was called for the second time in less than a week to help the homeless tenants. There had also been a fire the Tuesday after. It was a smaller fire in an apartment building, not in the same area, and it wasn't arson. But I remember it being on the news. It had been contained to the third floor, but there's still 75 people or something, uh, or 35 people 
So that was added to the homeless people. Into Saturday morning, the fire crews worked again with the help from other areas. Auburn, Lisbon, Woodstock, Topsom, Gray, New Gloucester, Paris, and Oxford. In the end, the properties lost were 149 Bartlett Street, owned by St. Laurent Housing, a value of about 287000 110 Pierce Street, which was owned by St. Laurent Housing, with a value of about 416 and 114 Pierce Street, owned by St. Laurent Housing, valued at 389000 and 116 Pierce Street, owned by Dennis Gilbert, valued at about 67000 That building was already condemned. Meanwhile, the investigation of the first fire was moving along. The 12-year-old suspect was named. Brody Covey lived in the building at 105 Blake Street with his mother, Jessica Riley, and his stepfather, Charles Epps. He was being held in an unnamed juvenile jail until his arraignment on Monday, May 6th. An unnamed juvenile jail? Like, there's so many. Well, they go to Long Creek, but sometimes some of the jails have... Things where they put him. But he's probably in Long Creek. Under Maine's juvenile criminal code, his identity was not protected because he was being charged with class A felonies. Therefore, all court proceedings were to be public. The Sun Journal was right on board with that and printed a picture of the kid as he spoke with a police officer the previous Tuesday, sitting at a table with a slice of pizza on his plate. I think this was one of the interviews prior to his being charged and not his actual interrogation. They were meeting with all the... Anyway, some of the other tenants had seen the boy among themselves when they went to get Red Cross assistance and other services. Katie Honeyfield said, I saw no remorse, no fear, no anguish on his face. Mm. Brody's stepfather, Charles Epps, had just been released from the Androscoggin County Jail the day of the fire. He'd been serving a short sentence on a probation violation, and I'll have more on him later. He's a quite an interesting person. Mm. One of Brody's classmates told the Sun Journal that Brody was shy and quiet. She wouldn't speculate on why he might start a fire. Good girl. A former tenant of 105 Blake Street said the apartments were depressing. The conditions were terrible, unsafe and dirty with cockroaches and bed bugs. Drug use among the tenants was also an issue. On Saturday, May 4th at 4.30 p.m., police had a press conference and announced that a second 12-year-old boy was arrested for the arson for the fire that started the previous night. So fire number two. The police told the public that the two fires were not related and the two boys did not seem to know each other. They were holding the unnamed boy in a juvenile jail. Meanwhile, the estimated cost of the latest fire was at about $1 million. Neighbors of the Pierce Street fire weighed in on this latest arrest. I will say, even though they're saying the cost, it seemed like all the landlords had insurance. They were all covered and they Hmm. covered the cost of demolition. Good for them. Neighbors of the Pierce Street fire weighed in on this latest arrest. Brenda Lee, who lived across the street from the fire scene, was ready to move back to Sabatis, where she'd come from. She had been at home with her 14-year-old son, Christian, (laughs) rocking around the Christmas tree. Get it? Because she's Brenda Lee. Yeah, I get it. Anyway, Brenda was home with her son when she heard screaming, and her son told her that the building across the street was on fire. Brenda gathered her dogs and son and brought oh. them down the street to her older son, Donald Peterson's house at 143 Pierce Street. Then she sat in her truck until 4 a.m. when she figured it was safe to go home. Brenda said, this is getting too crazy. It's crazy. It's foolish. Honestly, I think it's sad. I have a 14-year-old. He's in my house. He doesn't wander the streets. He doesn't run around. He's monitored. 
Brenda wanted to know why a 12 year old was outside that time of night. It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. Look at how many people he just made homeless. Where's the mom? Where's the dad? End quote. Brenda's son, Donald Peterson, thought that the parents should also be charged. He said, if the child has what it takes to start a fire, what else are they going to do? Are they going to kill someone? Are they going to become a mass murderer? <laughs> Anything can happen. End quote. <laughs> the mother of Donald's 10-month-old son, referred to by the Sun Journal as his fiance, Crystal Lamontagne. Hmm. I need like that. She said, if they're just setting random houses on fire, I just want to move. I don't even want to be here. Kalima Kalunga lived in one of the Pierce Street buildings with his wife and five children. He had moved to Lewiston two years before after having spent 12 years in a refugee camp in Zambia. He was originally from Congo. He said, I never thought I would be back here living like this. I don't know what to think or where we are going to go. Now we start again as refugees. We begin again. I don't know how to feel about it. We're trying to fix a life here. This is our home. Police told reporters they didn't think it was a copycat crime. How do they know? How? They said the <laughs> fire was started in a condemned garage and an accelerant was used. The day after the fire, a very good doggy named Shasta Aww. was sniffing out the remains of the fire for accelerant. And she sat down at at least two different places. She was a black lab. Only one caption said her name. The other captions just said accelerant. I hope they didn't have her name in quotation marks. No. Because I hate it when people put pet names think in quotation did. marks. The investigators scooped the debris into glass jars and sniffed it. As if they could sniff it better than Shasta. No kidding. The dogs should just be cops. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing that. Right now. <laughs> now, I have some questions, and I, I never doubt the doggies. However, I do have questions about a fire that's burned so thoroughly and in a building that might have all manner of items stored. How do they know where that accelerant came from and what that it was actually used to start a fire or if it was just something that happened to be there? It's a garage, for crying out loud. I'm just saying. Too bad I mean, you're not a reporter who could have been there and asked them those questions. Well, you know, but anyway, Chief of Police Michael Boussier asked parents to please keep an eye on their children. He said, if you don't know where they are and they're starting fires, that's a problem. <laughs> we don't want any more fires. <laughs> Again, with this fire, there were a few injuries. One person fell and two, quote, elderly people were treated for smoke inhalation. Fire Chief LeClaire said, it's been very taxing on all the personnel. We're all very tired. Hmm. Tim Saucier had been visiting his girlfriend, Crystal Crowell Gary, at her apartment at 43 Bartlett Street when he saw flames outside the window. He said the siding on both of the buildings was starting to melt and go up in flames. For people that might not realize that they're wooden buildings, but most of them have vinyl siding that gets yeah. all melted and yeah. smells horrible. As Crystal roused her four-year-old son and ran out of the building, Tim pounded on doors to alert neighbors. He and Crystal both said they didn't hear any smoke alarms. Tim went into the buildings next door to warn people. He said, when I was in one of the buildings, there was black smoke everywhere, and I didn't hear a single thing except people opening their doors and running out. He told investigators, I just saw two people booking it down that way. And he indicated down Pierce Street toward Birch Street. Tim said the two people were about 5'10 and late teens or adults. Larry Guy lived at 128 Pierce Street next to the condemned garage. 
He told the Press Herald, I was sitting on my porch smoking a cigarette before bed when I heard a loud bang. After the noise, Larry said he saw a young man, teens or early 20s, run away from the garage and across the vacant lot between his building and the condemned building. Phyllis St. Laurent owned three of the ruined buildings. She had just updated a lot of the units. She told the Press Herald, I'm devastated. I'm just glad no one got hurt. Kiara Ojama, one of the displaced tenants, said she heard her two-year-old son coughing in the bedroom. When she went in, she saw smoke and flames. She grabbed her son and one-year-old daughter and fled. Nemo Muhammad, 20, was studying in her apartment at 110 Pierce Street when a neighbor yelled, get out, the house is burning. Mana Abdi, 17, lived on the first floor of 114 Pierce Street with her mother and brother. She saw the fire at 10.30 p.m. She said, I woke up, Mom, the fire was going nuts. I'm still shaking. Many of the residents of the Pier Street building were Somali immigrants. They joined the others who didn't have housing from the, from the first fire at the Lewiston High School gym. High school junior Muhammad Awil came to help, offering to translate. His friend lived in the Pier Street building, and even though the friend had not had any sleep the night before, he still showed up to take his SATs that morning. Scott Parker, one of the Red Cross workers, told the Sun Journal of the Somali families, it's amazing how much fortitude these people have. Another worker turned to him and said, that's because this isn't the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Usually the Red Cross would be able to shelter people in hotels and motels in the area, but because of the number of victims and the two fires, they didn't have the resources. After the second fire, people were getting scared. Pauline Griffin, who lived on Pierce Street, said, I want to get the hell away from here. This could be me. Aziza Ali, who lived at 149 Bartlett Street, was planning on spending the night with a friend in the same neighborhood, but wasn't sure she could sleep for fear of more fires. Meanwhile, the Red Cross was wondering what to do with all the people who needed help. Jennifer Gaylord was the branch manager in Lewiston. She said their financials were based on helping 60 people a year. By the Pierce Street fire, they'd helped 400 people that year already. The temporary shelter was eventually moved from the high school to the Colise, a multi-purpose arena on Birch Street, and home to the Maine Nordiques, their tier two junior hockey team. Back to Blake Street, the first fire. Remember Jessica Ramsey, the mother of this week old baby who lost her dog in the fire? Yes. A week after the fire, she had mixed feelings. She was happy she and her baby were safe, but she felt guilty that after running out of the building in a panic with Aiden, her son, she forgot that her eight-year-old pit bull McSmilo was shut in the bedroom and she couldn't get back in to get him. Hmm. And while she was grateful for the outpouring of gifts from the public, it was tinged with a little resentment. Two months earlier, she had written on Facebook that her baby was coming and she had nothing. She asked for help, hand-me-downs, whatever. She got no response. When she moved into the building in February, she was happy that someone would finally take her general assistance voucher. A month later, she saw condemned notices on the building. A maintenance worker told her she didn't have to pay rent until the building was up to code, so she stopped paying. Some of the tenants were served eviction notices, but for some reason, Jessica was spared. Her boyfriend, Caleb Brown, moved in with Milo. On the day of the fire, Caleb had just left the building to walk down to the store. A friend was over visiting Jessica and the baby. Caleb was a few blocks away when he smelled smoke. Quote, I said, boy, that's awful close to home. Mm. End quote. But he just left the building, so he thought, it's safe to assume it's not us. 
Moments after Jessica noticed the smoke coming into the living room, she heard firefighters screaming to get out of the building. Jessica said, I grabbed nothing. I wanted to get the baby to safety. There's so many things I could have done. Jessica's friend went to move the car. That's when Jessica remembered Milo. But she couldn't hand the baby to a stranger and her friend has just gone. She pleaded with people to go back to get the dog, but nobody would. When Caleb returned and found out about Milo, he was gutted. He said, it kills me to think he's in the bedroom scared. It is a pit bull. They have such cute faces. I'm sorry. It kills me to think he's in the bedroom scared, alone, terrified, trying to get out. I was relieved that Jessica and Aiden were safe. I was devastated at the same time. My best friend didn't make it. I have a hard time thinking about his final moments. I'm not able to recover his body. There's a pile of rubble over there. Jessica's dad had died 10 years earlier when she was 17. She lost all of the possessions she had of his, like his Dale Earnhardt drinking glasses. Mm. She said, it's almost like my dad died again on me. Every little thing I had of his is gone now. Jessica had three other children who lived with her grandmother, and she had been in the process of getting custody back. She'd lost her job because she was pregnant and things were rough. After the fire, she'd received formula, clothes, 800 diapers. She said, all of a sudden, a community becomes amazingly wonderful. It's like God sent millions of angels in our direction. You wouldn't receive this stuff if you were just crying out and being honest. She said she would be giving leftover items to people out there who need help more than I do right now. And that kind of reminds me of, remember in episode 124, the Jane Shusko one, where her father said that. He said, I needed help for years and nobody would help us. Now that this happens, people help us. But like this way people are. She was still looking for a place to live at the time of the article, but she said, I'm very hopeful to make it so my son gets everything he needs. I will eventually work on my own and stand on my own two feet again. At the time of the Blake Street and Pierce Street fires, there were 69 condemned buildings in Lewiston. And the year before the fire in 2012, the city had torn down 13 buildings. Lewiston's vacancy rate hovered between 20 and 25 percent. The U.S. Census in 2011 reported that about half the residents in the downtown area of Lewiston lived below the poverty level, meaning at that time they earned less than 11490 annually for one person, $23,550,000 annually for a family of four. About 25% of the population in that section of town reported being unemployed. Many depended upon government assistance. There were abandoned buildings all over town, many with a red placard with a white X, which means the fire department has condemned them. These buildings became derelict as squatters lived in them, or people ripped open the walls to steal copper pipes. When the financial crisis happened in 2008, banks foreclosed on over 900 buildings in Lewiston alone. One landlord, Rick Breton, had sold many of the buildings he owned in Lewiston because he and he also owned buildings in Waterville because he said the quality of tenants had gone down and he could barely mm, make a profit. He, he said, I wouldn't take a free building in downtown Lewiston right now. Lewiston City Councilor Craig Saddlemeyer said the city needed to address code violations. The only agency that did it was the fire department and they're busy. Saddlemeyer said, I think some landlords have gotten comfortable about code enforcement not breathing down their neck. Gail Arsenault, the director of planning and code enforcement said, I think we've been a magnet for the area poor people to relocate in the downtown. Some tenants know they can get away with behavior that they otherwise would not be able to get away with in a tight market. 
Matthew Dyer, an attorney with Pine Legal Services, thought that was a bullshit argument. He said, I'm very frustrated that this narrowly averted tragedy is being spun around to blame the tenants. A municipal code enforcement body has the authority, and I would say the duty, to bring enforcement actions against landlords. Matthew Dyer had represented one of the tenants of one of the burned out properties in a lawsuit, and this was in 2010, before the building burned, because of bed bug and cockroach infestations, which he won. And this information may sound like it has nothing to do with the rest of the story, but it really does, because the conditions of that area led to the severity of the fires. But I think we'll find as we get through this that the conditions of the area and the attitude towards the people of the area and towards the buildings in the area all led to the crimes and why they happened and the severity of them. In fact, last year, it was like spring of 2021 when I was still working for that business publication, Lewiston beat out Detroit, Fort Myers, Florida, Camden, New Jersey, and I can't remember, was it Cleveland? For a $30 million choice neighborhoods grant because of their plan It's a 25-year plan to replace housing in that neighborhood, in the Tree Streets neighborhood, with energy-efficient housing. But it's more than just about housing. I just happened to find my story on my phone that I wrote at the time. And it says, specific plans for housing include replacing 92, quote-unquote, severely distressed public and assisted housing units, and also a plan for systemic block-by-block replacement of the century-old obsolete lead poison tenements because Mm. Lewiston actually had the highest rate of lead poisoning um, in the state that now dominate the Tree Streets housing market, the plan said. The team behind the grant application, it said, the sites targeted by the grant, two-thirds were built between 1880 and 1920 as wood-frame millworker tenements and all are severely distressed. The grant application said the 28 block target area has three of the state's six extreme poverty tracks as designated by the U.S. Census Bureau. Nearly all families in the area, quote, subsist at extremely low poverty levels with no clear pathways out. Participation in quality early learning programs is nearly non-existent and education outcomes through high school are exceptionally low. Healthy food and positive lifestyle options are largely unavailable and the ones that are, are underused. And it annoys me, and it annoyed me at the time I wrote that, and it's always kind of annoyed me how, and also the poor sections of Augusta and stuff too, that poor people are blamed because of landlords who know that they can get away with letting people who have no options live in the crappiest, cruddiest housing. You can blame them, but they're not going to keep it up if it's already a piece of shit. Right, yeah. right. And, yeah, and, and the, by them, you mean the tenants. Yeah, well, the tenants. And it's not up to the tenants to make sure a triple decker meets building code. I know. It's not up to the tenants to make sure there are working smoke detectors and the light in the lights in the hallway work mm-hmm. and there are cockroaches and shit. People yeah. can't help being poor. I want to see it fixed up because if you drive through that area, it's still not a pretty area. I've always thought one of the ironies is that 28 block area is called tree streets, but there are very few trees. Yeah. And the other irony is it's the largest church in Maine. The Basilica of St. And it's a beautiful, huge, but the double spires and it's smack dab in the middle of that neighborhood. Some of the buildings were not bad looking when they were first built, but they're 
just derelict. And it was French Canadian mill housing. It was never wealthy or even middle class. It was always where poor people who yeah. worked in the mills lived. It's and now that that industry's gone, but they can fi- they could fix it up. It could be a lovely city. They are they fixing it up. up. It is a lovely city, yeah. and Lewiston's going through a renaissance, and they're refurbishing the. Oh, middle. I gotta go There's buy my building. A lot now. of good stuff. It's not dirty okay. Louis anymore. I just don't want to see. The people get pushed out. Well, the whole point of this grant is to renovate the neighborhood to allow the people who live there now to live there to allow port. It's not gentrifying. The grant isn't to gentrify. It's I know that isn't, but I'm just saying. Early Monday morning, May 7th, a week after the first fire and a couple of days after the second fire, sirens blared again. This time it was 114 Bartlett Street, 118 Bartlett Street, and 91 Horton Street. The three buildings shared a courtyard. Two of the buildings, the ones on Bartlett Street, were empty. Each of the Bartlett Street buildings had eight units, and each of the units was a three-bedroom unit. There were two huge buildings. The Horton Street building had three units. The two empty buildings were in the process of being remodeled and had working sprinklers, which coupled with the water from the fire hoses, just the buildings were ruined. They burned fast and hot anyway, but Mm -hmm. Everett Jankowski Sr. lived across the street at 119 Bartlett Street. He said his roommate smelled smoke and called 911. They looked back out the window and saw both buildings fully engulfed in flames. Everett said, we watched all of it burn. We watched the firefighters do a great job trying to put it out. Fire just rolled across the edge of the roof. After the fire on the previous Friday, Everett said, his roommate said, I've got to get out of this neighborhood. Just two days later, all of a sudden, right across the street from our house. It's ridiculous. And I love Lewiston. We do so much to make it a great city. What do our residents want to do? Just knock it down to nothing? It's bananas. The two empty buildings on Bartlett Street were owned by LJM LLC, valued at $102,600,000 each. The building at 91 Horton Street was owned by David Langelier and valued at about one hundred and sixteen. dollars The building on Horton Street was probably going to be okay, and I think it is still there. I might be wrong. The other two are totaled. Lewiston residents were beside themselves with the latest fire. Lance Murphy bought renter's insurance for the first time after the first fire. He lived on Horton Street right across from the latest building that had burned. He had already been planning on leaving Lewiston in a few months. As his neighbor told the Sun Journal that everyone was saying they wanted to move, Lance nodded and said, everyone's saying that. I didn't want to move out of Lewiston. Now I do. The rumors were flying. Some people said the two 12-year-olds were covering for someone else. People thought there was a serial arsonist on the loose and anyone could be the next victim. Elizabeth Scott, who lived on Main Street, said that on Monday morning, my son woke up. Mom, Dad, is our place going up too? He's scared. He's crying. He's 13. My husband had to calm him down to reassure him it was okay. Wesley Stover, who was a newspaper carrier living on Knox Street, said he was nervous about being seen out in the early morning. What if someplace he delivered a paper caught fire? He said, I walk out. Who's to blame? This town is going to H-E double hockey sticks. (laughs) He was also wondering if he should move. 
Paula Griffin lived four buildings down from Friday's fire on Pierce Street. She was trying to find a place to live across the river in Auburn. She had lived in her current place for three years and had a five-year-old son. She wanted all the empty condemned buildings torn down. She said, we've got one across the street from us right on the corner. Someone could easily get in there. I don't feel safe. I feel like, what's next? I hope it stops. Karen Doucette lived on Horton Street. Her mother was trying to get her to move to New Hampshire. Karen said, I take a sleeping medication and I didn't hear a thing. Connie Tardiff also lived on Horton Street. She woke up at 3 a.m. to see flames next door and having firefighters knocking on her door telling her to leave. When she was allowed back in, the air was dense with smoke. She was born and raised in Lewiston and had lived in her apartment for seven years. I'm looking for another place, seriously. That's the last straw right there, she said, pointing to the remains of the Bartlett Street buildings. Christina Bennett of Great Falls Properties told the Sun Journal that she'd been bombarded with phone calls. I probably have in Lewiston 6 or 7% vacancy rate. We do fairly well. But if you look at Facebook today, everybody wants to move out of Lewiston. People are canceling showings. Everybody's scared. We're trying to tackle how to help people not be scared. She said her company was sending teams to clean up debris around buildings, and they were thinking of installing cameras on the buildings. Mm. Linda Twitchell, who lived in Healy Terrace behind the first fire, bought renter's insurance after she witnessed that fire. I was just thinking the uh, insurance companies must have. She said, you don't sleep, but you're tired. The police, the firefighters, the Salvation Army, the Red Cross. If I'm tired, I can't imagine how they're feeling. While she thought about moving, Linda said, I'm not going anywhere. We shouldn't have to move. The city was sick of the fires. Deputy City Manager Phil Netto said, the hammer is coming down. This is going to stop. We are exhausting every opportunity, every resource to make sure people in this city feel safe. To that end, the city designated a special response area that was bordered by Park, Maple, Shawmut, Sabatis, and Main Streets. In that area, police would step up foot patrols and bike patrols. Code enforcement officers would inspect vacant and condemned buildings and eject people living there illegally. And landlords, as well as tenants, would be forced to clean up debris and mess. And, you know... I would say that most of that stuff should be done anyway. Yeah. And especially a neighborhood like that is right near the police station is right there in that neighborhood. They could have foot patrols all the time. No kidding. In fact, I think any city neighborhood should have foot patrols. I agree. And I think it helps with the police resident relations too. Exactly. For them to be out there walking around. They always have these things that come up like years ago when Gordon and I had an apartment building down and Parkside, they had a Parkside police station, like they had a little office there, but they never last. Like yeah. they were doing that to kind of have the foot patrol and have their presence there. But then they, yeah. they just, the budget cuts it. They don't, they want to spend money. They want to spend money on being militarized. Right. Anyway, police chief Michael Boussier said, we can't say we're never going to have another fire, but the city will take steps to minimize future risk. The community needs to be vigilant they need to understand what's going on in their neighborhoods that's how we're going to catch these people people are fed up they want to stay in their neighborhoods they want this to stop and it's like yeah people need to be vigilant but so do the cops no no kidding at the same time that monday was brody kobe's initial appearance in court if you recall brody was a suspect in the first fire brody's aunt amy riley went to court to support him When asked if she thought he did it, she said, I don't really think he could have. I don't see Brody as that type of child. 
Brody had lived with Amy two years before when she had temporary custody of him for a few months. She said he was a good student and never seemed to have an interest in fire. He didn't even want to get close to the stove. She said Brody was a really good kid. He was never in trouble, always went to church, end mm. quote. But then again, two years ago, the kid was 10 and, you know, right. things changed. Amy believed the charges were really bogus, end quote. Amy hadn't seen much of Brody since he'd been living in the condemned building with his mother and her boyfriend, but she knew he didn't like living there. Brody lived on the second floor with his mother, her boyfriend, Charles Epps, and three siblings. Brody's lawyer was Alan Lobozo, who I think has been in some of other. Yeah. The second boy, who hadn't yet been named, also made his initial appearance that day. His hearings were closed to the public because a petition had yet to be filed against him. If you remember, he was arrested on a Saturday. This right. was Jeffrey Dolly was representing the second boy. Governor LePage, who was born in Lewiston, mm. was scheduled to come visit the city to see the damage on Tuesday. Paul LePage was one of 12 children, and his hard luck story is known to many Mainers. Hmm. He left home at 11 years old, and with the help of kindly people, which he downplays, but he did get help, he was able to make it on his own. He actually had a connection to the fires. His brother, Richard LePage, hmm. was the one Adriana, the woman with the broken foot, helped out of the apartment building. I always felt when LePage was running for governor that the press didn't try hard enough to find out the true facts behind his. He supposedly left home at the age 11 with 50 cents in his pocket. I don't remember anyone truly trying to find out what. I read a story once about it, about his childhood. And there was some friend, an older uh, couple or something, not a friend of the family, but somebody that he knew somehow that helped him a lot. Mm -hmm. He wasn't like living on the streets. And and the reason that's an important point is he's running for governor again. But when he was (laughs) governor, he's very anti helping anybody. I thought I had seen in one of the articles someone had asked him about his brother. He has 12 siblings. He didn't really keep in touch with them. But um, I believe somebody did ask him about his brother being in the fire and he just had some non-answer. Right. And I also can't remember if it was on this visit or another one when a reporter asked him how it felt to be back in Lewiston and he made some comment that wasn't favorable. It wasn't like, I hate Lewiston, but it was kind of like, oh, well. I'm right. here or something. When Governor LePage came to town, he offered some cliches and platitudes. <laughs> Quote, you take one step at a time and move forward. These are disaster times and you do the best you can with what you have. Or I should do it like him. The encouraging thing <laughs> is that, sorry, I can't. The encouraging thing is that there are a lot of people willing to help. It turns out he really wasn't one of the people that were going to help. He later did allocate some disaster relief, but it took a while. At this time, he said, if there is any discretionary funding available, I haven't found any. The Lewiston Sun pointed out this was not true. He could allocate up to $350,000 or even $750,000 from the emergency fund, depending on how he did it, without the legislature's approval. I think in the end, he gave like 30000 and then the legislature gave 30000 or some bullshit like that. It wasn't a lot of money. 
As for the two young suspects, LePage said, they ought to be put away. Do they realize how much devastation they've caused? I mean, I've been on the street at 11 years old, and you know what you're doing. I'm sorry, but these 12-year-olds need to be handled to the fullest extent of the lot. Such now, a compassionate now, man. Now, please keep in mind that these the two boys had only made initial appearances, had not been convicted of any crimes yet. But that's our former governor, and not future. He will not be governor Hopefully not but and also it's pretty standard that kids that age who set fires they're doing it because of emotional or psychological problems not because they're they're trying to be malicious and cause devastation friday may 10th the two boys were charged brody covey i wish he had a different name was charged with three counts of arson the other boy abdi ibrahim of 287 bait street was charged with four counts of arson abdi lived with his mother marion his father yosef lived elsewhere in lewiston on saturday may 11th it was announced that arrests had been made in the bartlett street fires which is the third fire Two men, Brian Morin, 29, and Brian Wood, 23, of Mm. Lewiston, had been arrested. Both men had criminal records. Brian Morin was a convicted sex offender, and Brian Wood had a history of arson. Brian Morin was listed as homeless, but he had been staying with Brian Wood recently. And because they both have the same first name, although Brian Wood is spelled with a Y and Brian Morin is with an I, I will call them by their last names. There's raw footage video, which we'll have the link of Brian Warren being interviewed. It's like a one of those raw, but I like it when they put those unedited right. ones online. Um, I think it's WGME Channel 13 in Portland interviewing him about the fires. And it's not clear, but I think it was the Saturday morning before he was arrested, he was mm. done this interview. He tells the interviewer that police thought he started the fire, but he didn't. He also throws his pal, Wood, under the bus, reminding the interviewer that Wood has been charged with arson before. Mm. He tells the interviewer he was down at the police station for hours earlier in the morning because his friend Brian Wood told police that he, Brian Morin, started the fire. He says he denied it. He's asked if he's going to take a polygraph, and he says he will, and it will come out negative. Mm. He said he owes Brian Wood money for rent, and that's why Wood told police he did it to get back at him. In a press conference, Police Chief Michael Boussier bragged about how intense the investigation had been. It's been very difficult. There have been a lot of expectations within the community. As a result of these arrests, hopefully people can sleep a little easier tonight. And I'm going to be talking about the police a little later. Okay. Because they love to brag, but they yeah, but they love to pat themselves. All of these, they pat themselves on the back. They didn't really investigate at all. Yeah, the, and I think that, like, especially in the last one, it's like the usual suspect type of thing. It's right. like, but also because Brian Wood, and you'll find that neither of these guys is very smart, but he brought attention to himself. Fire. Marshal Joseph Thomas said, we have some people who will blow your doors off when they're looking for someone. It's quite an operation. What? I don't really know what he meant, but if he meant that literally or. Does he mean in the fire marshal's office? Yes. Like investigators? Investigators, oh, yes. Okay. I think he was speaking figuratively. I would hope so. He also said that the number of fires in such a short time may seem unusual, but in the late 1970s, Portland had a spate of fires similar type of thing. He said, quote, it's cyclical. It's Lewiston's time. They have a lot of vacant buildings and they're easy targets. 
On May 13th, Brian Morin and Brian Wood were arraigned in Lewiston District Court on three charges of arson each. Both had bail set at $350,000. According to the police affidavit written by Daniel Young, investigator with the State Fire Marshal's Office, while standing on the street corner, Wood and Morin talked about and then agreed to set the apartment buildings on fire. Brian Morin told us that he and Brian Wood talked about burning the buildings because they were sick and tired of all the abandoned buildings in the city that were not being repaired by landlords, end quote. Wood had been interviewed as a witness and also volunteered to police that Morin had set the fire. Wood also rode his bicycle to the store to buy batteries for his scanner during the fire. And I was just thinking about this bicycle riding. There have been at least two places and maybe three where I've lived where there was a guy who lives in the neighborhood, who is developmentally disabled, that rides his bicycle. There was a guy in Bangor that did that. Everywhere I've ever lived, there's been that. And they always sound very talkative. Except for here in Belgrade, we don't have it. Justice John Belvo set the bails at $100,000 more than requested by DA Neil McLean because of the disregard for human life and the fear already in the community. Judge Belvo said there was a great fear in the community, maybe rightfully so, Morin's past criminal record included a 2002 conviction of unlawful sexual contact to which he pled guilty. Wood had been charged with arson in 2008 for setting a truck on fire in Portland. The charges were dropped when he was found incompetent to stand trial. Wood had other crimes in his past, which he had been in and out of jail. He had violated bail conditions, violated probation conditions. His court appointed attorney, Stephen Carey, said, I'm afraid he doesn't fully understand some of those conditions of release. Wood's grandmother was ready to put up her property to pay his bail. I don't think she had enough, so he ended up staying in jail. Morin had four interviews with police, and eventually he admitted to setting the fire with Wood. Morin's attorney, Richard Charest, said that his client was not a danger to the community. He had already been questioned and released by the police. Morin's sister, who would not tell reporters her name for fear of harassment, said her brother was developmentally delayed, had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and had Tourette syndrome. If you watch the video of Morin being interviewed, you'll notice that he seems to have facial expressions and tics that he cannot control. I thought it was weird that one of the papers had a series of photos of him in court and the caption was like showing emotion when I think it was just his facial expressions that have no bearing on what his emotions are. When he speaks and when you see him in video, he grimaces and looks pained a lot. But it didn't have any connection to what he's saying. He just makes his... The sister told reporters that after Morin served time in prison for his sex offense, he lived in the streets, squatted in abandoned buildings or couch surfed. She said, he's been homeless a long time. He's never gotten help. I couldn't help him. The two boys appeared in court Monday as well. Androscoggin County Assistant District Attorney Melanie Portis said she thought it unlikely that either boy would be tried as an adult. Like Brody Covey's family, Abdi Ibrahim's family was also about to be evicted from their home. Marion Ibrahim was served an eviction notice in April because she started a fire, quote, intentionally, according to the landlord. The fire set off the sprinklers in the whole building. No charges had been filed in that fire, and I couldn't find out any more about it except that police said Abdi was not a suspect. John Conway was the attorney for the owner of the apartment building. He said Marion had already terminated her lease. He said they already moved out because there had been damage to the whole building. 
Brody was in court with his lawyer, his mother, Jessica, and his stepfather. He was ordered to undergo a mental evaluation to see if he was competent to stand trial. Abdi was at court with his mother, Marion, his father, Yosef, his lawyer, and an interpreter for his parents. Abdi could speak fluent English. Abdi looked down most of the time as Judge Belova was speaking. The judge said, Abdi, you've got to eyeball me here, okay? Okay, buddy? The judge also told Abdi about his constitutional right to remain silent. Judge Belovo said, zip it, as he made a zippering gesture across his mouth. Both boys were brought back to custody after the hearing. And I thought it was interesting the judge was, was advising him that way. But I mean, yeah. I'm glad he was because he's a 12-year-old boy. And yes. you'll see as we go on that, that it is an issue. On July 13th, Brian Warren and Brian Wood were both indicted in the Pierce Street fires. More of the affidavit come out in court. After the two stood on the street corner and agreed to set the fire, the two men went behind the building. Then, quote, Wood pulled from his coat pocket a can of butane lighter fluid that Morin recognized as similar to the one he was missing from his bedroom closet. And I hate to be cynical, but I always am when things like that. It's like, I sure think some cop didn't say to you, oh, wasn't, didn't you have one in your, whatever. Yeah. Morin said that Wood sprayed the lighter fluid on a black object he couldn't see. Wood lit it and went into the second building. Morin took a cushion off the couch behind the second building and Wood sprayed it with that lighter fluid. Wood put it back on the porch stairs, lit it using his girlfriend's black butane lighter. Then Wood threw another cushion on the first one. When they got home, Wood told his girlfriend that Morin started the fire, and she told police. She said that Wood had been with Morin before the fire started, but then Morin left, and Wood saw the fire out his window. Wood told police he saw Morin coming out of the side entrance of 114 Bartlett Street right before the fire started. Wood's apartment was at 131 Bartlett Street, right down the street, though it seems to me like it would be a stretch for him to actually see. I looked at Google Street Maps, and it's far enough down the street that I don't know how he... His apartment building was like a little house. It wasn't like a triple-decker where he was high up, so I don't know how he... A witness told the police he looked out his window after hearing cracking and popping noises and saw flames and smoke coming from 114 Bartlett Street. The witness also thought he smelled kerosene. About 15 to 20 minutes before the fire, a man fitting Wood's description was seen riding a bicycle in circles on Bartlett Street. Brian Moran was in court a few days later to plead not guilty to the charges. He remained in jail, not being able to make bail. Meanwhile, the prosecutors in Brody Covey's case decided not to try him as an adult. Brody's lawyer, Alan Lobozo, said it would have been ludicrous if they had tried. The prosecutors hadn't decided on Abdi's case yet. He was being psychologically evaluated, and they were waiting to hear the results of that testing, as well as what the fire investigator had to say before they decided what to do. At the end of July, Brody's lawyer was back in court, arguing that the videotape confession be thrown out. On the tape from May 2nd, first Brody told Detective Robert Morin, who's no relation to Brian Morin, that he poured gasoline on the back porch of the building and on some clothing and lit them with a lighter. Later in the videotape, Brody's mother, Jessica Riley, comes into the room. Brody tells her that the fire was an accident. Then he tells her that he poured rubbing alcohol on a flattened cardboard box, lit it, and put it next to a shed. 
Now, I'm breaking in here with some questions. First of all, why the fuck was the cop talking to the child without a parent or anyone else present? But also, how can they even say the confession is a valid confession when he's changing, is totally changing his story? When Detective Morin first asked Brody what he was doing when the fire started, Brody told him he was watching the movie The Hulk on TV and sitting on his mother's bed. A friend was lying on the bed and listening to music through headphones. Brody said he heard crackling sounds, then a popping sound coming from the kitchen, and he went to check it out. When he got into the kitchen, Brody saw fire coming from the back porch, and the kitchen was filling with smoke. He told his friend, whose name, appropriately enough, was Blaze. (laughs) Blaze looked into the kitchen, and the two boys fled the building. Okay, Mo, the next part is going to drive you insane, so after I tell it, I'm sure you'll have some things to say. Okay. When Detective Morin asked Brody if he set the fire, he shook his head. Brody shook his head. Then Detective Morin said that Brody had changed his story since the day of the fire. He said no one deserved to live in such a disgusting building. Morin said, Detective Morin said, it just makes sense to me that you did it. At first, Brody denied it. Then after a while, Brody said, I'm actually kind of glad it burned down but I'm pretty sure I didn't do it. But then he finally admitted to setting the fire saying, I was just getting tired of living there. First, he said he lit the clothes on the porch. Then after Detective Warren suggested he must have used an accelerant that he put gasoline on them. Brody thought that the gas can on the porch was empty. But after talking more with the cop, he agreed there must have been some gas in the can. Then Brody said he thought someone else must have caused the fire. There was a rumor about a Molotov cocktail being thrown at the house. Brody said to the cop, the clothes wouldn't really have went up like that. But then Detective Warren kept at him and Brody said, oh, yeah, there was some gas in the can. And then he lit the clothes with a lighter he found in his pocket. Hmm. Later, when Brody was alone in the room with his mother, Jessica, he told her the fire was an accident. She told him that he should tell the police. Brody told Jessica that the police had led him into that confession. When Detective Warren returned to the room, and this is all stuff that's on the videotape, he told Jessica the story that Brody had told him. Jessica said that couldn't be right because the gas cans were empty. When mother and son were alone again in the room, Jessica told Brody that he needed counseling and she felt that the fire was her fault because she'd been ignoring him. Brody then told her he poured rubbing alcohol on a cardboard box next to some toys on the porch. And we'll get into this more later because there's more detail about it. But I think he was telling her the rubbing alcohol because he was trying to tell a story that made sense. Because just like a lot of false confessions or confessions, he's trying to tell a story that would appease the cops. He was trying to please them. I was listening to a podcast about totally something else. And there was an 11 year old girl who confessed to something. And they had an expert on saying that kids that age need specialists to question them for yes, crimes because they're more interested in telling adults, trying to figure out what adults want to yes, hear exactly. and telling them that than understanding what telling the truth is, especially when the cop is read techniquing. Oh, like he that. is definitely too. So when he came back in the room, Jessica told Brody to tell him what he just said. And that was when he told the story about putting the box with the rubbing alcohol next to the shed. <laughs> then, and only then, did Detective Warren read Brody Covey his Miranda rights? Mm-hmm. On the second day of Brody's suppression hearing, Detective Robert Morin told the court he suspected within minutes of interviewing him that Brody Covey had set the fire at 105 Blake Street. He doesn't see anything wrong with that. 
within minutes i knew yeah. it was him detective warren said there were a lot of little inconsistencies Alan Lobozo asked the cop if he didn't think a 12-year-old would be intimidated by being questioned at a police station. Brody was first questioned at the motel, remember, and then brought to the police station alone for some unknown friggin' reason. There's no law that says they have to have a parent with them. And the Um, other thing is, too, when the cop leaves the room, leaves the kid alone with his mother, they do it on purpose. I know. So that they'll talk without the cop there. I know. Alan Lobozo asked if Detective Warren really thought a 12-year-old was able to end the interview. The cop agreed that he probably was intimidated. The judge didn't make a determination yet on whether he was competent. The hearing was continued until a psychologist was ready to testify at his findings. A few weeks later, Brody Covey's suppression hearing was continued. Psychologist Andrew Wish testified. He met with Brody for over three hours and found him to be a smart boy who felt compelled to defend his mother, especially against DHHS, which is Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Wish also said that most 12-year-olds, unless they were told they could leave, would probably not know they could leave. Most adults don't know they can leave. Most adults won't end an interview. And even if they're told, oh, you can leave anytime, they know that's not true. They know that not, right. Right about the time of Brody's motion to suppress hearing, Abdi Ibrahim was ordered released from juvenile detention and put into a residential facility that had programs to help his various issues. The trial proceedings would be on hold for the moment. ADA Melanie Portis objected, saying that Abdi was a risk to the community. She said the boy had a criminal record from the age of nine, including theft, robbery, burglary, and assault. His current charges included not only arson, but criminal mischief and criminal threatening. She said a residential setting cannot ensure that he won't set another fire. In his recent psychological evaluation, it was found that Abdi had poor impulse control, was immature, wasn't cognizant of the effect of his actions on others, and had a lack of remorse. But it also said he didn't have a particular fascination with fire. Judge Rick Lawrence felt that keeping Abdi in Long Creek, the juvenile jail, which was in South Portland, would not be a good thing since it would just reinforce delinquent behavior. In the new facility, he would receive counseling and medication if needed. The court proceedings for fire number three were also ongoing. On August 1st, 2013, three different psychologists testified that Brian Wood lacked the necessary reasoning to go to trial. Anne LeBlanc, director of state forensic services, met with Wood several times and said that while he could grasp some simple terms and concepts about the legal process, he wouldn't be able to understand a plea deal that would have different factors to weigh. She said, he's not good at keeping more than one or two pieces in mind at the same time. She said his understanding is erratic and shallow. I think he's very impaired. Wood did not understand that he would be at a competency hearing. He wanted to tell the judge he was innocent. He's like, this is my chance. When Brian Wood was four years old, he was diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and what was then called mental retardation, which is now, I think it's called intellectual disability disorder. When he was 18, he was found incompetent to stand trial for the arson charge in Portland. He was ordered into the custody of the Department of Health and Human Services of DHHS sent to Riverview Psychiatric Center for treatment and eventually released. His IQ was about 55 to 57. And the average IQ is 100. So it's the mean. Oh, the mean. You're right. The mean is about 100. 
Unlike some people who can become competent with treatment, Brian Wood was not going to improve. Two psychologists from previous court cases had come to the same conclusion. The prosecution called a witness who testified that Woods had said he could get away with any crime because he was incompetent to stand trial, which was kind of true. Another witness said that Woods sold his food stamps and other free food he received and used the proceeds to buy drugs. The judge ended up ruling in Brian Woods' favor. He was found incompetent to stand trial and was released into DHHS custody. According to the law, he could not be held in custody for more than a year before the arson charges would be dismissed and he'd be released. Brian Woods' old neighbors were not happy to hear this news. Brandon Cundiff, who lived on Bartlett Street, said they shouldn't have let him go in the first time around. He could have hurt a lot of people. Lewiston Police Detective Lieutenant Michael McGonigal said, he's on our radar now. We certainly understand the public's fear. Joe Chabot, who had moved into Wood's old apartment, said, we don't need that kind of problem. We've got enough problems already. (laughs) Cecilia Ward, who lived near the Bartlett fires, said, we had a fire alarm the other day and all I could think of was that the building was going up. I don't feel safe. Christy Grenier had a bit of a different take. She said, I'd say 75% of the population is a danger. Lewiston is Lewiston. But the fires taught her one thing. She said, I have renter's insurance now. The Sunday, August 11th edition of the Sun Journal had a front page article with the headline, For Boy, Crime, Filth, Chaos, and Love were all part of Life at 105 to 111 Blake. Along with pictures of the rundown trash-strewn building where Brody lived, Judith Meyer, managing editor, tells a story. Brody was born in Oklahoma and lived there for the first few years of his life. His grandfather is quoted in the article, The kid's in trouble and I feel sorry for him. I do. I wish he'd have stayed here. Casey Covey said the best thing for Brody would be to get him out of there and away from Jesse. Jessica Riley married Charles Epps, her 'er ne'er-do-well boyfriend, a week after Brody was charged and taken into custody. Jessica was apparently developmentally disabled. She has moved around to different places as she meets different men who dominate her. When she left Lyle Covey, Brody's biological father, she didn't keep in good contact and moved so much he couldn't keep track. Lyle didn't have the money for a lawyer. On May 9th, 2012, Jessica and Charles Epps signed a lease for the apartment on Blake Street. They moved in with Brody, his three-year-old half-brother, and the four-month-old baby girl who was the daughter of Jessica and Charles. Jessica had a second daughter in March of 2013. The monthly rent was $575. They paid the first month's rent and then did not pay after that. By the time they were served an eviction notice, they owed more than $6,700. To be fair, the building was a dump. On March 19th of 2013, the city condemned the building, citing conditions making it unfit for occupancy. The landlord said the family had caused a lot of the damage, punching holes in the walls, breaking newel posts, hoarding trash, writing on walls. Although Jessica said that a lot of that was there when she moved in, and I have no doubt it was not in good shape. Also, also holes in walls and writing on walls aren't going to have this aren't going to make the city condemn it. I know. The the cities condemn it. They're they're much more serious. There were pictures of it online and the like all the newel posts have been kicked out and there was just like a rally with no newel posts, yeah. which isn't safe. But I'm not blaming those right. specific tenants. And I will also say that 
I'm sure they were all kicked out at the same time and the building was not maintained. A lot of people heard Charles or Scooter, as he liked to be called, but I'm not going to call him that, threatened to burn down the building in retribution. The day after the eviction notice, a Lewiston School District truancy officer came by the house looking for Brody, who had missed 11 days of school since February. And I didn't know they still had truant officers. He reported reeking trash in the hallway, broken glass, furniture, broken furniture, cigarette butts everywhere. Early in the afternoon of April 29th, code enforcement officials visited the building, trying to get the tenants to clean up some of the trash. A couple of hours later, the building was on fire. And I will say as a former landlord that one of the biggest issues we had was in our back hallway and stairwell, people would store shit or throw trash out their back doorways and those back stairwells and hallways would get. And we lived in the building, so we were able to keep on them. It's one thing if it's your own house and you want to like just throw your living garbage, but it's not just garbage though. It was debris. Like, you know, I'm going to throw this piece of furniture back here until I can get it out of the, you know, it's hard to get rid of stuff. So, but it would block it up and you can't have that because if Charles Epps was a career criminal, he had never had a real job by his own admission. He told police in a taped interview, I inherited the ability to lie Christ off the cross from my mother. He also said that although he's a criminal, he's not that criminal anymore. He said, all he does now is sit at my home, do my drugs and take care of my kid. Jessica Riley called her and Epps, Bonnie and Clyde. She tattooed Epps across her chest and deferred to her husband. And she does. She has one of those big tattoos across her chest. However, Epps did seem to really love his stepson, according to observers, and Brody seemed to have a connection with his stepdad. One of the articles said that at the end of that taped interview, Epps is brought in, and he seems like really upset and says to the kid, why didn't you talk to me and Mm. blah, 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 and they're hugging. But Charles was a dirtbag and an idiot criminal. In mid-August, he was sent back to jail on a probation violation. Charles Epps had only been a maid a couple of years, but he'd racked up a long list of crimes and was on probation. He was walking around with a couple of BB guns and even visited his probation officer carrying a duffel bag with the guns sticking out of the bag. He had taken off the little orange things on the end that indicate their BB guns. So they look like real guns. But even BB guns are not allowed when you're on probation. So he got sent back to jail to serve out an 11-month sentence because he's a dumbass. In July, prosecutors in Abdi Ibrahim's case filed a motion to have him evaluated for competency. His defense lawyer argued that this was just a ploy for them to see if Abdi could be tried as an adult. I think that they were getting desperate because their mm-hmm. things weren't going slow. In October, all were back in court for a motion to suppress Abdi's confession. Abdi had denied starting the fire in the garage at first. He later admitted to lighting a cigarette with a lighter, then touching the lit cigarette to a paper with gasoline on it. Police interviewed Abdi at the police station. His mother was there, but the interpreter was somebody over the phone because she was not fluent in English. Police said that Abdi waived his Miranda rights. Hmm. According to police, Abdi entered the garage with two other kids, but they left. And he started the fire on his own. One of the other boys with him said he saw Abdi sitting at the far end of the garage with smoke coming out of his mouth and hand. A half hour later, all three boys left. The sniffer dog found accelerant at the scene of the fire and on Abdi's shoes, but not on the other two boys' shoes. 
Abdi's lawyer argued that he couldn't have understood what waiving his Miranda rights meant. Mm -hmm. And then it came out later that the interpreter didn't explain it correctly to Mary and Abdi's mother. Abdi's attorney, Jeffrey Dolly, hired a language expert to review the tape of the interview and the, and the translation of the person translating. And it was determined that Marion didn't really understand what waving Miranda no. rights meant. In the person no, because she was a Somali immigrant, right? And yes, and she's on the interviewer. Phone. I think every minor should be required if they're being questioned they, by police to have like a guardian ad uh, yes, litem. exactly. Not their parent who no, they're not they going to have somebody. Uh, a legal advocate. A 12-year-old kid, even a 12-year-old kid who's who speaks English as a first language isn't going to understand. I still seem to understand yeah. it. Uh, well, we've talked about this before. Everyone should just have a friggin' lawyer with yes. them, regardless. Yeah. In the meantime, Judge Rick Lawrence threw out Brody Kobe's confession as evidence. Alan Lobozo said, I'm delighted for Brody. This is the right result supported by the right facts and the proper legal conclusion, really boiling down to the fact that they didn't read a 12-year-old his rights. So anything that flows from that violation is fruit of the poisonous tree and also gets excluded. And yes, there were so many things wrong with that kid's confession, but the main thing was after all that confession, then they read him as Miranda rights. It's like, no, you're supposed to be read as soon as you're in custody. Without the confession, there was no evidence that Brody set the fire. There were no physical evidence at all. At the end of the year, there was an article about the fires and what was going on with them. There was an article about Adriana Garcia, the woman who saved the governor's brother, remember? Adriana was not having a good year. She said, I just want my life back. And I'm trying, but I don't know how. It's hard. It seems when she jumped out of her bed, she not only broke her cast, but she rebroke her foot. She said right after the fire, she was in denial. She was trying to put on a happy face. She's the one that said she was one of God's soldiers yes. and stuff. Yeah. Shortly after moving into a new apartment with her husband five blocks away, Adriana said, I was walking to the market to get some milk and somebody opened the door and let their dog out and it just charged right at me. The dog bit her on the hand. Then she stopped going out. She was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. She said, my life is just confined to my apartment. It's just been one big turmoil after the fire. She said the hardest thing was no one came to help her that afternoon. How do you see a 59-year-old lady with a cast and a broken foot getting out of that building? Nobody knocked on my door. That haunts me because I took care of everybody. I was friends with everybody, but nobody came to help me. As for Jessica Ramsey, she was the one with the week old baby. She was doing much better. She had gotten an apartment in Auburn at Androscoggin Village. She was happy there. There weren't bed bugs or roaches, and she had a fire extinguisher in the Ah. kitchen. She said, I don't think I could picture this building burning down. I think people would would actually knock on your doors if it did. On Blake Street, they just ran out of the building. In January, Justice John Beliveau put Abdi's case on hold, saying the state had not proven the boy was competent to stand trial. However, he said that there is substantial probability that the juvenile will be competent in the foreseeable future. He ordered that Abdi remain in the custody of DHHS and continue treatment and he should be evaluated again in 60 days. As for Brody Covey, in February of 2014, the Androscoggin County District Attorney's Office dismissed the arson charges against him. For the time being, he was still living in an undisclosed therapeutic facility. On June 7, 2014, Brian Morin pleaded guilty to three counts of arson. His actual sentence would come later, but he would not be serving more than seven years in prison. A month later, Brian was sentenced. 
He was sentenced to 25 years with all but five years suspended. He would be on probation for 12 years. If he violated probation, he would end up serving the 20 suspended years, or he could. At his sentencing, Brian read a handwritten letter to Judge Mary Gay Kennedy. He asked her to sentence him to a psychiatric hospital so he could get the help he needed for his mental health issues and to allow him to be a father to his eight-year-old daughter, Rachel. He said, I realize I need to smarten up and straighten my life out. He wanted to go to college and become a car designer and a businessman in the real world. (laughs) That just makes me kind of He said he wanted to have a happy, loving family. And he, quote, will never hang out with people like Brian Wood, who likes to set fires. Please give me that one chance to prove myself to you. I won't make you look bad. Judge Kennedy said, we don't have that type of placement for you or people like you. And it's very sad. This is not a great result for anyone, but the public safety is more important. So he will spend a period in jail and be on probation for a very long time, end quote. Assistant DA Andrew Modulus said, one of the difficult things in this case was that Mr. Morin had committed a very serious crime and that put a lot of people at risk. But when you look at him individually, we found out he had major mental health issues in addition to a very low IQ. These were all conditions that we took into account for the sentencing recommendations we made. In August of 2014, Abdi Ibrahim was found competent to stand trial. Abdi was born in Africa and spent his early years living in a refugee camp in Kenya. His family first moved to Baltimore, but then came to Lewiston when Abdi was six or seven years old. He was the third of nine children. After the family moved to Lewiston, Abdi was diagnosed with ADHD and prescribed Focalin, a stimulant that treats the disorder. Although he was in eighth grade at Lewiston Middle School, Most of his time was spent in special education classes at the Renaissance School in Auburn. Testing showed him to have a low IQ, and the DHHS assessment said he had a history of acting impulsively and aggressively and hanging out with older kids who were bad influences. He smoked pot, but didn't drink alcohol or do other drugs. He'd been in trouble with police for threatening behavior with a BB gun, shoplifting, and stealing a bicycle. He was sent to Sweetser Children's Services in Saka when he was found not competent for trial. While there, he was, quote, fairly engaged and committed to his treatment, end quote. However, he also assaulted staff, ran away, taunted police, and shoplifted. Two of his counselors said he seemed to do what he was supposed to do during treatment, but as the treatment period came to an end and he knew he would be released, he started acting out, assaulting a staff member, not taking medication. He hid three lighters in his room and was caught smoking. His family attended some of the counseling sessions, but they disagreed with the staff about how much supervision Abdi should have. Both Marion and Yusuf saying it was unrealistic. When counselors visited the family home when Abdi was released, on home visits, they observed a disturbing level of violence among the siblings in the home. Abdi's home visits were stopped because of safety concerns of him being in the community. Counselor said when Abdi started home visits after months of therapy, he became more verbally and physically aggressive, and he told counselors he wanted to break rules and commit crimes because no one was holding him accountable when he did these acts. He stated that he felt above the law and that thought scared him. He told counselors that he would continue to push limits and see what he could get away with until he received a, quote, wake up call, end quote. And though he was afraid of going to Long Creek, which is the juvie prison, he thought that 
it would be a wake-up call for him. Counselors concluded that Abdi would follow rules when he had to, when he was being monitored, but he knew he wouldn't be at home and he wouldn't do what he was supposed to do when he was there, which I said, no shit, because he's a kid. And also about the violence in his home, there were nine kids. It depends on the counselors, but I've just found dealing with some counselors on my own that maybe I sound like a parent who's in denial, but I think some of the things that they think are weird are just no, not. if you have nine kids, especially in an apartment, it's not even like they lived in a big house or something. No. There's going to be a lot imagine. of fighting and shit. On January 2015, Abdi Ibrahim pleaded guilty to arson and was sentenced to Long Creek Youth Development Center until his 17th birthday. Abdi was released on his birthday, but he was arrested again by Lewiston police for aggravated assault for the beating and stabbing of a 52-year-old man soon after that. Mm. He also assaulted a police officer, among other crimes, and he was recommitted to Long Creek until his 19th and a, 19 and a half birthday. And I tried to look him up to see what he's been up to lately, because this was in uh, about 2017. That was the last thing I read about him. But it, believe it or not, Abdi Ibrahim is a common name. And yeah. I couldn't find anything about him. Brian Morin is also a very common name in Maine. And I don't know what he's been up to. He's on probation. He has been released from prison. He's probably just trying to serve out. Brian Wood, on the other hand, has committed a bunch of other crimes and has been in and out of court since he was deemed incompetent to stand trial. And I'm not sure what Brody Covey ended up doing. There is one Facebook page that has his name that is a recent one. And it's a private account. And I wasn't going to friend him. I found his old page too from when he was 12 and it made me sad. And that's the end of my long episode. Well, that was interesting. Now, what made you pick that topic? I just always remember those fires when it was going on, even though they did make those arrests, there was still a sense that maybe there was somebody else doing it. And as far as my feelings about it, I don't think the first kid did it at all. The second kid, I have a lot of questions about. I don't know if he actually did it on purpose. I think he probably was smoking in there and stuff. I don't know if he did it on purpose. I don't know if he actually even did it. Who the hell knows when it's just confessions? You don't know. The other two guys, who the hell knows? They probably did start it. But I do remember that because it was at my book group. I said something like when the two Bryans got arrested and they said they were sick of all the abandoned buildings. I was at my book group and I said something like, well, I can kind of see their point. And I, these two different women yelled at how can you even say that? I wasn't saying I think it was right, but I can see how if you live in that neighborhood and you're so sick of all these abandoned buildings, right. I don't think that's honestly why they did it. I think that they're just doofuses oh. if they did it. And they're like, oh, why don't we, why don't we burn down a building? Yeah, those other ones burned out. One thing that strikes me is it sounds like the Lewiston police didn't really know how to do a good um, fire investigation. Like I said, it seems like, okay, in the first one, he just homed in on that kid for no reason. Uh, Then the other kid, who, who the hell knows? They admitted to being in the garage and that kid could have actually done it. And the other two guys, 
they didn't inv- but none of them they really investigated no the other two guys it was because brian wood said oh my friend brian moore and started the fire yeah. and so then they questioned brian moore and you know, oh, it was brian wood and then they yeah. got this confession that who knows how true it is right like all of them confessed and if they hadn't confessed they never would have found him yeah him. but one thing especially with neighborhoods with those tight packed buildings and all those old buildings and stuff fires can start for any sorts of reasons i know oh well, thank you that was very interesting and nobody died except for uh, the doggy and, and the pot belly pig pot belly pig but chris the cat got out yeah thank god for that one of the workers saw him through the window he saw some movement Aww. in the window it was chris Aww. anyways so do you have a recommendation i do <laughs> So I watched a documentary. I know you don't like it when I bring up my book. I know. I don't dislike it. But but in my book, the protagonist has written a book about Benedict Arnold. And it, this isn't a huge part of the plot because it's going to make it sound like my book is boring. But that, he, <laughs> but that he was misunderstood and he was jerked around the Brady Bunch history that we've all learned over our lifetime about him being like America's biggest traitor ever and stuff is an injustice to him. So I was looking for something to watch on Prime and came across a documentary called Benedict Arnold Hero Betrayed. Hero I'm, Betrayed. So I'm like, well, I'm going to watch this. Of course. It'll probably you piss me to. off because nobody knows more about this betrayed hero than I do, but I'm going to watch it. And I did, and I'm just going to go through the NNW and talk about it. And for those of you who may not know who Benedict Arnold is, he was a Revolutionary War hero. He was a general. He sold the plans for West Point to a British agent and became America's biggest traitor ever, according to that history he escaped before he could be captured or tried and he joined the british army and he lived out his final days in england and his name became synonymous with traitor in my book people react poorly her agent thought it would be a great book because hamilton was really big at the time but they didn't seem to get that hamilton is a musical and it's different but anyway so i'll go through it bad reenactments i'm taking away a point This documentary was not a high-budget documentary. There were a lot of reenactments. In fact, it was almost all reenactment because this is 1775. (laughs) I think that they used hobbyist reenactors like a living museum or something yes well you know how guys like they get to get yes. this and they get together not even a living museum but they have reenactments of yes battles. i know yes so these reenactors were not actors but reenactors so george washington looked like the biggest doofus who ever lived. <laughs> One of the really bad things, and this is going to cost them points in another category, the Indians, they were played by chubby white men who did not look like American Indians uh. um, for the most part. And I'm not going to call it cultural appropriation. I'm going to call it reenactors not being good. One of the biggest things is... He was not an attractive man. He was pudgy and chinless, 
but there's a very handsome rugged guy playing him Mm. which appealed to my romantic view of benedict arnold but i still can't so i'm taking away a point narrative cliches i can't recall any when i watched this it wasn't my intention to do an nnw so i wasn't really paying attention but they don't have the stuff we've been complaining about lately like the b-roll stuff there are talking heads but it's very this is a very rudimentary <laughs> low budget it's hard as in the right place when but, was um, it made do you know it was made in 2021. Oh, okay. Oh, um, it had a couple writers, but one of the guys, because I looked it up after, because I wanted to send him a fan letter. He won't connect with me on LinkedIn. It was directed by a guy named Chris Stearns. Martin Sheen is the narrator, but one, one of the creators of it is Tom Mercer. And I read in a thing on the website about it that he grew up in the Saratoga Springs area. And was always kind of confused about the legacy of Benedict Arnold because here he won these great battles in the war, and yet his name had such a negative connotation. And growing up in Augusta, because of Arnold's march to Quebec City, a lot of stuff in Augusta, there was the Arnold Hotel, and there were, you know, historic markers and stuff. And I was always confused, like, I thought we weren't supposed to like him, but then there's all the stuff commemorating him. Racial gender obtuseness, I'm taking off a point for the American Mm. Indian. I'm sure they had a limited budget, but I just feel it was obtuse to do it that way. Lack of good visuals, I'm taking off half a point. There was some beautiful like drone footage and stuff of West Point and the Hudson River area and Lake Champlain and where a lot of the stuff took place. But on the other hand, I know there aren't photographs and stuff of what happened back then but there was not enough of the visual i I mean most of the movie was reenactments the filming of them wasn't bad but i felt especially and we'll get to it in a minute the march to quebec they could have done more with the visuals for that my guess is they didn't come to maine which brings us to missing pieces i'm taking off half a point because I was very skeptical when I began watching it because I'm like, they're not going to have a lot of the stuff. Most of my knowledge is based on a book called The Tragedy of Benedict Arnold. And I'm sorry, off the top of my head, I can't remember the author. She's not one of the authors they had talking on the doc, but there were some authors who had the same point of view, but they did have a lot of the details about his early life, why he was the way he was, the really heroic stuff he did during the Revolutionary War. But my one of my favorite Benedict Arnold things, the march to Quebec, up the Kennebec River through where we live and the whole tragic story of that, not only did they not have a lot of the detail that they should have had about that, but they didn't, it wasn't filmed here. I mean, come up, you know, put an extra 500 bucks in your budget and come up to Maine for a day or two. You're already in Saratoga Springs. Come up for a weekend and film where they march. Inaccuracies, anachronisms. I'm taking off half a point, again, for the depiction of the American Indians. I'm guessing their budget was limited. And also just some of the reenactors just did not look the part storytelling i'm not taking away any points because they did a very good job of telling a story i was afraid there was stuff they were going to leave out especially 
one of the greatest naval moves in American history, where on Lake Champlain, he managed to sneak his boats past the British, much bigger, more dangerous British boats during the fog of night. And they had all that. I thought they did a good job of telling the story and making a compelling case, especially how he was betrayed and how petty people with less imagination and less courage than him resented him and therefore fucked him over, which I think many of us can identify with in our own lives. Freshness, I'm not taking anything away because they bravely told a story about somebody people are conditioned to hate. Just watch that Brady Bunch episode. Um, There's more than one. They love to- But the one where Pete, I know they- Peter plays him. Peter had to play him in that play. Repetition, there is some repetition, but not annoyingly so. So I'm not taking away any points. I mean, just showing the same scenic and beating the drum. Maybe some people would take away points, but given how I feel about the topic, I am not taking away any points for beating the drum because it spoke to me. I was so thrilled. I cannot sure? even begin to tell you because it is a theme it that runs through my book. To find a documentary that validated my point of view on this and that told the story well and that I'm going to watch again. So that's, let's see, one, two, three and a half. So that's a six and a half. Hmm. I don't expect people to feel about it the way I did, but I think if you're curious about a, a story in American history that you may not be that familiar with, And curious about this name you've been using your entire life to mean traitor. I recommend it. You may (laughs) laugh at some of the cheesiness. And George Washington is just this big, like, goober. Some of the heroes of our revolution do not look like you'd expect them to when they're played by reenactors. I found it on Prime. You can find it if you're interested in watching it. Benedict Arnold's Hero Betrayed. Thank you. And that's my NW. So Yay! we'll be back in October. Yes. And I'll have a topic. Maybe I'll pick one up on my trip. So that's our episode 128. Oh my goodness. And we'll put some stuff online. Yes. Before I go on the trip, we'll have stuff online. I know mm-hmm. there's some earlier episodes we still have to catch up on, but the current ones we're trying to at least yeah. get our stuff and and we don't put just so people understand we don't put all our source material on we cite our sources during the show and also we get a lot of stuff from newspapers.com older stuff but we put stuff that we think will enhance your understanding or make it interesting and there's an article that we have a link for that we used a lot we'll put it on you know i know a lot of podcasts put all their source material and everything online if we ever have more resources we'll do that but i think you can trust the fact that you know we tell you what sources we're using during the show so on that note thank you thanks for listening and our website is crime and stuff online dot com dot com and you can find our links to our social media there and stuff yes so good night bye